Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Jack Black and Kyle Gass have literally brought the band back together. Tenacious D are releasing their first album in six years, putting together an animated series pretty much by themselves. It is truly two craftsmen doing their best work yet. This time it's like we don't have Bob Odenkirk and David Cross of Mr. Show there to handhold us and carry us across the finish line. We wrote this and directed it ourselves. And it feels like we're, hey, you know what? It feels like hey. we're finally grown up. Yeah, grossed up. We're finally all grossed up. It's satisfied, yeah. It's a bullseye. <laughs> This week, Tenacious D. They'll talk with me about their new animated series, Post-Apocalypto, and more. The band has been around for over 20 years, going from playing tiny clubs in Hollywood to playing 85,000-seat stadiums. You know what's more alarming is that it almost feels normal now to do that, because we've done it so many times. Yeah, but in fairness... We they didn't all they came to see Metallica. Yeah. That one we, we were <laughs> we true. were on right before yeah. Metallica. I don't know that we could have pulled that crowd. Also, did you know that Jack Black got his first acting gig at thirteen? I went to school. I was so stoked to be able to go to school and like some kids. I saw you on TV. Thank you, thank you. I was a celebrity for like. It lasted for a couple weeks where I, I had some superhuman powers, but then I went back to being the dweeb. Plus, jazz singer Jose James will tell you about the song that changed his life. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests this week are the two members of a band that I love so deeply, I once sent a check in the mail to a theater company to buy their T-shirt. There is literally a poster of theirs in our bathroom. It's for a show I went to in 2001. They're called Tenacious D. They don't need much more introduction than that. Kyle Gass and Jack Black have been together making music for over two decades now. Even while Jack has become, you know, an actual movie star, the band has put out four records. They had a TV show, a feature-length film, and now they're back with a new album and animated series. It's called Post-Apocalypto. The first episode for the animated series just dropped. It tells the story of Jack and Kyle, JB and Rage Cage. They survived the apocalypse. The world is very weird now. There are monsters everywhere, and they're on the mission to change planet Earth back to the way it was before. Every character is voiced by Kyle and Jack. The animation was drawn by Jack himself. It's silly. It's stupid. It is very funny. And the songs they recorded to accompany the show drop as an album in November. Here's a bit of the beginning of the series. This doesn't need much setup. The band sees an explosion in the sky. The world is about to end, so they hide, of course, in a refrigerator. Did you feel that shadow? Whoa, look up there! Oh, God! It's a bomber jet! It's dropping something! Run! Okay, okay. Oh, God. There! There's a... Uh, one of those old-fashioned refrigerators, right in there. Dude, these Welcome to Bullseye. What a joy it is to have you on the program. Why did you cut my line out of that oh, clip? Man, I knew that was coming. I didn't cut the clip. Blame Kevin Ferguson, was, my producer. Kevin, he probably cut your line out of In the interest of, of time, I'm sure, Cage, that they had to make a couple trims. 
But yeah, he had to trim one here. It seemed like it was a. Uh... If it was actually trimmed, I am impressed at the number of efforts that they left in. Look at Kevin; it's just glee, practically gleeful back there. Yeah, that's what I do. Um, the truth is, I was hearing spaces that should be trimmed. Like, <laughs> yeah. is it a little long in I this know. section? We can't take off the editor cap. We Which just mean, when we cuts. see that the bomber jet yeah. is dropping the bomb and and saying run. It's like, why is it taking so... Well, as soon as you Suspense. realize there's a bomb, just run. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, n- it's not too late. We can still make yeah, can nips still. and tucks and that's, tweaks. That's the great thing about the DIY production, is that it's all us. So yeah. we can do whatever the hell we want. Apparently, E-I-O-U-I-U-I-E was what you wanted. It is what we wanted because that's... A ton that's, of that. Well, what we wanted was uh, the idea that the nuclear explosion was so powerful and we were in a little refrigerator we wanted to give the impression that we had to tumble a lot because you know it sent us flying so each ia-u represents another flip to do of the of the of the fridge that we're now originally we had a great sound cue that i liked and we went back and forth where jack did he might want to do it we're really getting into the weeds Weeds, on this right now but yeah we're still nipping and tucking and tweaking you're right i apologize at this point in your lives gentlemen Mm -hmm. As you, let's say, enter middle age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like how you, mm-hmm. you um, phrase that, sir. Why are you going on stage to rock? What does it mean in your life relative to when you were 30 years old? Hold on. Let me figure out how old Kyle would have to be for him to be entering middle age. That'd be, so you'd be like 114? <laughs> yeah. Lives are getting mm-hmm. longer and longer. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You could make it to 114. Well, that's this always, could be the middle. That's always been the middle age. Why is middle age 45? <laughs> really? Are you really going to 90? I think um, I think fifty is the one you get. You yeah, gotta say fifty because yeah. then you're halfway yeah. to a century mark if you're an optimist. Well, when you're on the backside of life, I think you do learn to appreciate everything more. And actually, rocking on stage, one of the few transcendent kind of special experiences that I enjoy. So that's what I like. Well, I mean, twenty years ago, every concert felt like a fiery hoop. There's a lot more adrenaline involved in general. Uh, but the creative process remains the same. We are, it's always climbing that, that mountain and pushing the stone up. What is that, Sisyphus? Sisyphean, no. sure. Okay, mm-hmm. sure. And um, I still get the same charge out of the creative experience. And uh, this, this one here represents, like, our most personal work in that. This is our baby 100%. The stuff that we did before, we, there was always more of a collaboration uh, feel to it. This time, it's like we don't have Bob Odenkirk and David Cross of Mr. Show there to handhold us and carry us across the finish line. We wrote this and directed it ourselves, and it feels like we're hey, you know what? It feels like hey. we're finally grown up. Yeah, grossed up. We're finally all grossed up. Hey, satisfied. Yeah, it's late, but uh, here we are. <laughs> I have to say that I the the image that I have of you guys on stage is in some ways fixed by, like, the first times that I saw you on stage, mm. you know, at whatever, the Great American Music Hall in San wow. Francisco oh, or whatever. You saw that one? Wow, that's good and, uh, Or on your, you know, your original television show that was, mm. you mm-hmm. know, the premise of it was that your audience was pathetic. Yeah. Um, you, that you were pathetic, performing for a pathetically small audience. You know what? But we never put nobody in the crowd. You noticed there was yeah. a, <laughs> there was always a few people yeah. when they were... A genuine smattering of applause. Yeah, that's what we wanted. I was reading about your career and realized that you have literally played shows for 85,000 people. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, almost alarming to me. Mm-hmm. You know what's more alarming is that it almost feels normal now to do that. Because we've done it so many times. Yeah. But in fairness, we they didn't all – they came to see Metallica. Yeah. That one – we were <laughs> That's we true. were on right before yeah. Metallica. I don't know that we could have pulled that crowd. Yeah. But uh, I felt like we had uh, yeah. won over at least 72 percent of them at by least. the end of that set. That was a good. That was a good day. I personally would be terrified to yeah. go on stage oh, before Metallica to do something funny. Oh, we are. That <laughs> yeah, don't, was, get uh, don't get it wrong. It was. Yeah, it's always a, a little bit. There's a fight or flight reflex that takes that takes over right before it's time mm-hmm. to go on stage. And me and Kyle look to each other with, with terror in and our we eyes. Go, loophole. 
We look for a loophole. <laughs> Is there some way that this could be canceled? We would we would actually be relieved. But then we get out there and experience a, a powerful rush that's similar to some kind of spiritual or, or drug-related experience. One time we did actually have a real loophole. Do you remember in Germany? There was a lightning storm. We were doing storm. a festival, and we were just about to go on. But lightning is, you know, serious business. And stage manager, nope, stop. Stop. He was German. I don't know how you say yeah. that. But, uh, nine. At nine. And then we, all of a sudden we were in a, a little yeah, room for a long time. Well, We ended up going out and playing. Yeah. We ended up playing the show. That, that doesn't count as a loophole. We had yeah, to play right. the show. You're right. I read about one of those giant shows where you woke up the morning of, Kyle, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With, a, with a palsy. Yeah, I didn't know what it was, so I thought I was having a stroke, and uh, it was very terrifying. Our biggest show of our career, and I wake up with, uh, with some mystery disease where half my face is paralyzed, and I feel like, yeah, I'm having a stroke or I'm turned into sliced alone, either one. It was terrifying because we didn't know at that point if it was spinal meningitis no. or just a simple Bell's palsy. I didn't even know what Bell's palsy was. But whatever it was, yeah, yeah we had the show must the go show on. The show must we go on. We did go on. Yeah. But if you go back and look at set footage, Cage mm. definitely, half yeah. of his face is definitely not happy to be there. Part of the affliction of this thing, which I didn't know about, was that you, you couldn't close your eardrum or something so the loud sound was just, and I thought, you guys, something's wrong. We're too loud. And then I realized, oh, it's me. And it's my weird Bell's palsy. It's my Bell's palsy that I don't know what it is yet. It sounded too loud in your ear hole. How weird is it that my mom watched the stream and said, called me the next day, is there something wrong with your face? That's a mom for you. She's watching all the details. Um, that's that's just awesome. Yeah. That's a mom who's, who's cool. watching every... <laughs> Every opportunity that she had. Yeah. That's cool that she could. Yeah. Across the world, watching her boy perform in front of 100,000 people. Yeah. I'm going to upgrade it to 100,000. Yeah. I know you said 89 or whatever. Yeah, but let's go 100. Six figures. Clean. In radio, clean you're not Honda. supposed to go past two digits, so 100,000 clean <laughs> is uh, where you want to be, because otherwise it confuses people. How many people were at Trump's inauguration? Wasn't there 100,000 there? It was the well's the largest ever seen. Yeah. The two of you met as actors, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's Stage right. Stage actors? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who's, who saw who first? What do you guys remember about we just, the you know, other? We just uh, went over that. I'm no, I so definitely sure. was in the audience. I was in the audience watching Kyle. Kyle was in the Actors Gang Theater Company. This is a, a Los Rob- Angeles mm-hmm. theater company founded by Tim Robbins. Yes. And a yeah. bunch of other people that came out of the UCLA theater department in the 80s. And uh, if you were a, a theater actor in Los Angeles in the mid-80s, the Actors Gang was like, you know, the no. Beatles, or the, the, <laughs> the, the, pe- the, pep- the Chili Peppers. Ooh, Everybody the, wanted to be an Actors Gang, you know, and I was on the outside definitely... Uh, wishing I, w- I could be in, in there. And so I saw Kyle. He probably saw me but doesn't remember, like, <laughs> backstage, just going, ah, you guys are the best. <laughs> and then uh, later on when I got in to the Actors Gang, I had small roles, and we started hanging out a little bit, and we went to the Edinburgh Theater Festival, and he kind of started to slowly warm to me. It took a while. He was pretty <laughs> mean and, like... Ornery, uh, but eventually he did allow mm. me under his wing, mm. where I nestled and uh, learned at, at the feet of the master. Well, I'm nine years older than Jack, so when you're like twenty and thirty, you know, roughly, that's a big kind of gap. It's a big gap, but yeah, I was kind of jealous. Jack was uh, he sort of had a legend brewing even before it was like, who is this guy? He's so funny and he's a great singer and this, that, and the other. I'm like, well, who is this guy? Well, I'm gonna meet this guy. That's right, because the first show I did was the big show, and I came in with like a batch of songs oh, yeah. that I presented to Mike Schlitt. I was like, these could be good if you want to use them in the... Oh, yeah. And then he did use them, and you yeah. bristled. You were no. like, what? I'm the music guy. It was <laughs> it was a classic, though, really. Can't beat him, join him. I think I wanted to beat you at first, and then like, I, I couldn't. I have to join you. We joined because, forces. Yeah, that was it. There's a lot of energy in Jack. He's got a lot of energy. He brings a lot to the table he in does. that department. He does. It, um, come, it came with a bit of desperation, though. That's the <laughs> yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, early on, you were very eager to please. Yeah. And it was, you were auditioning a lot. And, but still, it was pretty obvious uh, it was a talent. 
I mailed a check to the Actors Gang what the? once to get a Tenacious D t-shirt. What? Oh my God, did it work? Uh, yeah, it totally worked. Oh, nice. This was like before you, to when you bought something on the internet, yeah. you couldn't give them the money over the internet. Oh my God, It yeah. was like I like filled out a web form and then had to mail in a check. Oh, oh that's got to be the original classic uh, tarot card design. Yeah, that was the yeah, one. They don't make those Dude, anymore. White on black. Do you still have it? No, sold it on eBay. Dang. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, guys. Oh. How much? I don't wear that many T-shirts. I think I got 40 or 50 bucks for Dang. it. Dang. Yeah. Admitted to it. I'm glad it was over over 20 bucks. I was going to be bummed yeah. if it was bargain My body basement. has changed. In I see. Years that's why. Hey, you look in fine shape, sir. Thank you, Kyle. That's yeah. very kind of you. So what was your relationship like? Kyle, I'm, I'm looking at you because you were the grown-up. I was the grown-up. Our relationship was, uh, it definitely was kind of a big bro, I think, at first. I, Jack was just such a unusual, interesting, he didn't, he just wasn't like you and I. He had a very kind of, I would say, kind of an alternate upbringing, sort of more of an open, which I think tended to uh, facilitate Jack's creativity, and but not like a like me, not like a great student, so to be. So I think we bonded on, on uh, yeah, the music and acting and creativity and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, it was uh, it was very satisfying. I get the impression, Jack, that you were a genuinely disastrous student. I was not good at book learning. <laughs> uh, I had trouble in school. I think that I I had never been checked for, but I'm probably dyslexic and. Other ADD, HD type of diagnosis would would probably fit me, but um, uh, I did. I was very passionate and active in the theater community. In theater classes, I excelled, and you know any of the some of the more creative types of, of uh, classes I I flourished in. But the thing about me and Cage early on, I really did need um, uh, a, a a big brother. I feel like I need I needed that mentor, really. and uh, also I needed a mentor. I needed someone to teach me. I needed him to teach me his ways uh, <laughs> around the the uh, the guitar and the music and and but really just emotionally too. There was a real emotional. Yeah, you didn't have all that. I think, but there was along with that that love and the good the good times, the companionship. There was also a very fiery. <laughs> Thing of competitive. The, well, there's a competitive rage that it actually came to blows yeah. one time yeah. uh, because you enjoyed teasing me and taunting yes. me. Yes, I did. And I think that you learned that from your big brothers yeah, who I teased was... and taunted you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you needed someone to torture in the same way. And you had me. I was vulnerable because I needed you so much. And you knew you could torture me. And you made fun of my brain size being mm. smaller than yours because you were able to beat me in chess. <laughs> And I got so explosively angry. Yeah. I didn't know how to process that because I didn't have a big brother. And I just <laughs> punched you as hard as I could. <laughs> yeah, that, was, uh, that was a tough. But Not I, in the I, face, though. No, Not in the face. It was a brotherly punch. But uh, there's something about our thing. I mean, I think we really were and still maybe are essentially actors. And even at the time, we, we didn't come from like we had bands in school and stuff. So we kind of had to figure it out. I remember going to our gigs and we had these little amps and... We didn't really know how to to do anything. Yeah, I mean, we could barely play. No, but we wanted it so badly. We wanted yeah. that rock. We wanted that taste of of. Uh, and so I think the attitude, the attitude, kind of substituted for like chops and stuff. And there's like a, a, a false bravado where we're yeah. like, anyone can do it. It's simple. <laughs> All you have to do is one, two, the... and taking on that uh, role of the person who's going to teach the world how to rock. Yeah, made it. <laughs> Uh, possible for us to rock? I think the comedy made it possible. I think. Oh, that's what it was. It was the portal. Yeah, because the first song we wrote, no one has ever heard and no one will ever hear because no, it's will. too painful because we were trying to be serious songwriters. And what, it was what about, was it called? It was about heartbreak and I think it was called uh, At One Time I Could Advise. I don't think it has a name. Is that it? At one time I could advise But now I'm lost in my own pain The habits had captured me And now I feel the rain So easy to... Ah, uh, you don't remember the chords. I just got one chord wrong. But It, it was about it. a painful breakup I had in college. I think there's something really embarrassing about singing about your actual feelings and that sort of singer-songwriter that never seemed to jibe. No. <laughs> like, that's not us. We gotta, we gotta be a little funny. 
More with Jack and Kyle from Tenacious D is coming up. Don't go anywhere. We haven't even gotten to talking about Jack's first ever acting gig, a starring role in a commercial for the video game Pitfall. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lagunitas Brewing Company. Original employee Ron Lindenbush remembers when the founder asked him to take over Lagunitas' community giving program. And I said, what's our limit? And he said, huh, I don't think we have one. And I don't want to say no. When beer can turn into money to help a good cause, I don't want to say no to anybody. To learn more, visit lagunitas.com slash community. On the latest Planet Money, a special report inside the business of asylum. We go inside an underground network of professional story writers, coaches, and scammers gaming the asylum system, and how the FBI cracked down. That's on the latest Planet Money. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne, and justice is within your reach. My mom refuses to take my phone calls. My boyfriend says I should take our cats with me to graduate school, but I think he should keep them. In the court of Judge John Hodgman, justice rules. My partner's board game collection is out of control. My sister won't stop stealing my clothes. I'm Judge John Hodgman. I'm tough, but fair. fair. I'll bring you justice, and I'm only a click away. Tipping. Automotive etiquette. Siblings. Roommates. If you've got a case, go to MaximumFun.org slash JJHO. Judge John Hodgman is tough, but fair. fair. Subscribe to the podcast today. Judge John Hodgman rules. That is all. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Jack Black and Kyle Gass of the band Tenacious D. They're back. They've got a brand new animated series called Post-Apocalypto. The first episode just premiered on YouTube. I had a friend in college who uh, was a pretty standard nerd, wonderful guy. And one year, I'm going to say it was my sophomore year, his junior year, he just appeared with this album that he had written (laughs) and recorded in his dorm room. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. I mean, I knew he had a guitar. That's what I knew. I knew he had a guitar. And it was quite good. And he had just one day decided essentially to be shameless, Hmm. you know, like that there is this idea. It's very much, much easier to not make record a heartfelt record (laughs) in your dorm room and and then share it with people and like recruit a band and play shows. Yeah. I remember just being awed. Hmm. By that, I, I, I'm kind of awed by it. I don't even know the guy. That's that's a lot to do from zero, from scratch. I mean, when I think about my favorite songwriters, I do think of the the raw, emotive, honest people like you know your Elliot Smiths, mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. your uh, Nick Drakes. These are the, the the songwriters that that really pull at my soul, at my heartstrings. I think once in a while. I mean, like the ballad of, oh, even it might be funny, but I right. think we do kind of go deep. We go real. We go back, we, we go, go down real. to the source of, of who we are. But yeah, there's always, always a bit a of, yeah. of of comedy wink. It makes it just okay. Wow. We need it. We can't That's let it just, go. Yeah. I think I'm, I've made peace with that. I, I, I don't mind at all. I, I love that, know. the road we've chosen. <laughs> I do too. It's a fun road. In fact, even in my side projects, they all they end up being kind of funny-ish. It just seems like why? Well, not? because there's also a great tradition of of rockers that have a good sense of humor, like you know Diamond Dave. Yeah, dude's just funny. Those funny. songs are fun. <laughs> uh, ACDC, early ACDC, yeah. especially. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that Tenacious D's music is kind of in dialogue with is the ridiculousness of big rock music, and one of the things that is great about Tenacious D is that it has never been mockery of the ridiculousness of rock of big rock music, but celebration of the ridiculousness of big rock music. I think you've I think you've you stumbled on a very important concept. Yeah. I think you can't really not like your subject. Well, yeah. Then it becomes something else. Yeah. Then you really I I don't know. That that then it becomes Parody? There you go. Yeah. But uh yeah, we celebrate 
We do make fun of of Satan, though. <laughs> Satan in music is just absurd and ridiculous and hilarious. Yeah. And we've had a lot of fun with that over the years. Yeah. But, um, but there is also something great about Satan. <laughs> He's powerful. Jack, we were talking oh, about your aspirations to performance when you were a kid. And I do have a clip of you in a television commercial what? in 1982. Oh, my God. I think I know um, what it is. This is a commercial for Pitfall for Pitfall? the Atari 2600. Yeah, that's my first, that's my first job. Harry. Yeah. Starring Jack Black. Yeah. This goes it. before we ever met, Cage. Just last night, I was lost in the jungle with Pitfall Harry, surrounded by giant scorpions and man-eating crocodiles. Well, Harry and I just grabbed the van, swung through the trees, and over the tar pits and found the jungle treasure. It was really neat. If you haven't met Pitfall Harry, you're missing the year's most incredible video game adventure. Pitfall for the Atari 2600 and in television. Tell the funny story, Jack. Tell the funny story when you went to school. What are you saying? What, what, Tell the, the funny story. What funny story? When you get the commercial and you have the wire in your sleeve. Oh, no, that's not. That's a whole different story. But I will tell you that I, uh, I wanted to be an actor, but it was my stepfather who, who uh, gave me the courage to, uh, to, to actually pursue it. And he took me out. He, he knew that I wanted to do it, and he drove me to auditions. And uh, I got that part. And uh, it was a real proud moment for that 13-year-old Jack Black. Mm. My first real gig, my first paid gig. But, um, but you when were I went to running. school, I went to school. I was so stoked to be able to go to school. And like some kids, I saw you on TV. Thank you. Thank you. I was a celebrity for like, it lasted for a couple weeks where I, I had some superhuman powers. But then I went back to being the dweeb that nobody cared about. I was like, how quickly... Because I think what I made a deal with with the Lord that yeah. if uh, if if uh, I could just be in one thing that people would see on television, I, I would uh, uh, devote my entire life to to to. Uh, That's an interesting thing, though, to have that experience of kind of celebrity that early, yeah. and then it's like you're on top, and then you realize really quickly that it's not you know it's not enough. <laughs> it's it's no, never never enough. enough. <laughs> you never get there. I know. Maybe it's the journey. No. Yeah. Eh. It's a destination, right? That's what the wise men say. <laughs> yeah. Growing up in Southern California, Jack, did show business seem like a real job that people could have to you? Well, yeah. I definitely felt the close proximity to the magic beating heart of the entertainment industry, the the, the mecca of, of uh, entertainment in the known universe you could feel it even her hermosa beach we we were only you know stones throw yeah half hour away from from the magic drive a five iron and uh yeah i think that had had something to do with my 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 life's uh trajectory, trajectory. yeah uh, jinx <laughs> did show business seem real to you when you were a kid kyle showbiz I would look in the mirror. I was classic looking in the mirror at six years old and thinking I'm going to be famous someday and just how am I going to do it? And this is, and I also realized that I couldn't ever do a normal job. I was not capable of thinking that way. I had to find an end run to normal living. At first I thought I was going to be a professional gambler. I thought that would be good. And I thought, I read some books. What age are we talking about? We're talking about like teenager now. And I thought, uh, I'm going to be a professional black, something that, would be cool that wouldn't be like a normal job. But uh, I always had my sights on the showbiz. It seemed like a... Did you have the discipline to try and be... I mean, like, that's like... No. There's like, you know how a it's lot a of... It's a fluke. ...comedians start out as ch- kid magicians? <laughs> right. And it's because all they want is for people to pay attention to them on their terms. Yeah. And they're willing to put in the work to learn how to do magic tricks to get that. Yeah. And then they become Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, my shrink said the reason is my my mom withheld approval just enough to make me go more. That was pretty good, Kyle. But, you know, maybe if you and I would just, OK, I'll show you I'm going to be extra of something. And uh, I think that contributed. I also remember my mom freaking out about somebody, a friend of a friend who was on a TV show, like a guest star on a Kojak or some 
and she thought that was the greatest thing. I thought, and even back then, I go, Mom, that is, he's a guest star one time on a show. That's nothing. I'll show you. You want special? I'll give you special. And it's so basically, yeah, my whole career is just trying to get approval from my parents. Kyle, I was really excited to see you on Brooklyn Nine-Nine recently. Thank you. That was really fun. You're welcome. I, I just want you to know, if I don't know if I have any of those parental vibes for you. No. Oh, thank okay. you. Well, look but for me on... Um, I approve of you. Look for me on Speechless. Okay. Season premiere. Great. What's your mom's favorite show that she watches? You should try to get on whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, have you auditioned <laughs> for Blue Bloods? <laughs> I could be the meth head in Law & Order. Oh, man. <laughs> that one, man. Just knock out a few teeth and see how it goes. Get in there. Oh, yeah. Call your agent. Get in a dish. That's kind of a, it's, it stays in in line with the Kojak theme. That it was Kojak, right? And yeah. She was, yeah. She's still kind of watching Kojak in a way. <laughs> she is. Law really. and Order. She yeah. likes that crime. Ching ching. Did you guys know what Tenacious D was like early on in doing Tenacious D? I mean, here's the thing. Aside from the friendship and the 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 uh, the mentorship that was happening there, there was also I felt early on that there was a chemistry there that just the idea in my mind of me and Kyle going on stage because it was inevitable that we were going to go on stage at some point soon and perform (laughs) our act whatever it was going to be and I had a feeling in my bones that the two of us together just the image of his face and my face up on stage together that there was something undeniably hilarious about it. Wow. Something funny and Man. wrong and wonderful. Man, I did not see that. You didn't see that? <laughs> I felt it in my buns. <laughs> well, we didn't even perform proper like in a club or like for we four years. We performed with the Actors Gang at, right. a, at a coffee house on Highland. Yeah. It's no longer there. Highland Grounds. Highland Grounds, yeah. And we named ourselves on, on our first concert right. there. It wasn't a concert. It was like we were part of a variety show. Yeah. And we got like our five-minute slot mm-hmm. in that show. And we named ourselves. And part of our slot was naming the band. And we gave yeah. the audience a multiple choice. And uh, one of them was Gorgazon's Mischief. Another one was Pets or Meat, mm-hmm. based on the amazing documentary by Michael Moore. and uh, Responsive Chord. Responsive Chord. But that was good. And then... Uh, Balboa's Biblical Tales. Balboa's Biblical Theater and Tenacious D. And in the audience, who was in the audience that day? Prophetic. It was, tell him, Cage. Harry Shear. Thank you. Harry Shear of Spinal Tap. Was in Highland Grounds and he voted. He voted for Pets or Meat because I I think he's just pals with Michael Moore. (laughs) But the fact that he was there... It was a sign yeah. from the from the metal gods that we were on the right track, and we were anointed. I think even more important and, and strange was our very first gig at um, at uh, Al's Bar. We opened for band. We had one song. There was about ten people there. Tribute. We played tribute. Uh, we'd never really yeah played in a club or bar, and one of those like eight people out there was David Cross. Yeah. And then he invited us to basically, yeah, open show. for for open, Mr. And then show. The rest is whatever. Yeah, I really just want to play you guys in Biodome. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I think this was like, this was like your debut national appearance was, was in the beloved comedy classic Biodome. Drinking beer and playing hacky sack can help improve the environment. It's all about raising consciousness. Ow! Hey, you just can't stand up and preach about it. Let me, uh, open up your chakras, Monique. Uh, no thanks, Siddhartha. Our fifth need is to save some trees. We just want to save some trees. Don't say we didn't save some freaking trees! Ah! Party of Biodome! All right, let's go! Bud and Dora are having a party at the Biodome? What are they thinking? How? Wait a minute. What about our party? Long Beach Park. Come on, Scott. Going to Biodome. Thanks for the background. We are really glorified extras in there. Yeah. You caught a little snippet in the snippet. background. Yeah. Where? Yeah. Which but this one? that movie came out in 1996. This is like four years before you guys. Yeah. Like got your HBO show or yeah. three years well, before you got your go HBO to the show. School with the director. I, I went to school. That that was our in. I knew yeah. the director, J- Jason Bloom, mm-hmm. from high school, from Crossroads, and uh, yeah, he he uh, threw us a bone. 
Yeah, he was he was doing us a solid, kind of. <laughs> when you got the show on HBO, the short films that oh, yeah. uh, were the first thing that mm. was, you know, that had Tenacious D in the title, uh, did you feel like you had made it? Yes. Wait, in Biodome? I did. No, no, no. When you got the show on HBO. Oh, when we got the show on HBO, it was definitely... Uh, well, we didn't know what we had until our first concert after it had aired on HBO. And it was instant because it like aired on HBO the first time of the first episode uh, right before Mr. Show. And then we had a concert. I think it was like one week later or something. And what usually was, you know, a crowd of like 70 to 80 people was a thousand. And they were <laughs> deep into it. They yeah. were like, yeah. It was a crazy, ravenous... Uh... It definitely, there was a before and after the show. But I contend more that we were we were kind of blowing up locally some. I mean, we were kind of like a band that you wanted to see, or comedy act. And also, I, I mean, think... that's why we were on Mr. Show. I mean, we were sort of like, it was happening. I think because of the ripple effects of Mr. Show through the comedy world in the 15 or 20 years since it was on television... Its influence makes it loom large in memory. Mm -hmm. um, and I think because of your success since, it, the influence of your show uh, looms large in memory. I don't know that anyone was watching it on HBO no. at the time. <laughs> I think you're yeah, I think you're right, yeah. Like I, had, I remember I had, a, I had a, a buddy in college who grew up in Sherman Oaks. And somewhere near his house, there was a video store that would sell or rent you bootleg VHS tapes. Yeah. And he came home, he came back to college one time with three VHS tapes on extra play. Mm. You know, the one where it's like eight hours long or nine hours long. And yeah. one was... Quality is not as good. The, it's poor quality. Mm. One was Larry Sanders, one was Mr. Oh. Show, and one was Tenacious D. Nice. Wow. And I remember watching those on the VCR in my dorm room and being like, why did no one tell me about this? <laughs> <laughs> that was the main was uh yeah the VHS tapes in the pre yeah, that uh, was back a, in the old days that, that was, was viral you, that's then, what it was and bands really took us on like we'd be on all the tour buses when they needed their cassettes to watch and stuff was it weird for you Kyle when Jack was becoming a movie star at the same time Tenacious D was well uh, yeah it is just weird when a really you know your 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 pal is just blowing up all over and then it's always like he can't get any big. He just got bigger. Wait, no, that's what? And it's just, uh, yeah. But uh, it, I think the hardest for me was just uh, the time off. There's just, you know, sometimes Jack would does a lot of movies. And so I'd sort of be sitting, waiting. But on the other hand, it's, uh, it's just great to see. And it's well-deserved. And uh, it's not like a, a fluke, you know. I mean, the fact that you were working since you were a kid and... And you've been good from the beginning. It's just, uh, you know, you knew what you wanted to do, and, and you're good. I mean, I think the real question is, why aren't I huger, really? Because I'm so talented. You're really good on Brooklyn. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Award-winning actor. But I guess I've chosen a different path. No, I've just not. Uh... What was that award? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. Not important. Oh, it was uh, uh, just an indie apartment 212, a little... Indie film. I that did. was the name of the film. Yeah, but what was the name of the the award? I think it was the uh, I think it was the uh, Ponchki, the Ponchki award. <laughs> well <laughs> deserved. Well deserved. <laughs> Thank you. Were, did you feel like Jack becoming a movie star was part of your plan or dream? I mean, I always uh, had dreams of. Uh, you know, making it in the biz. But I was thinking more, you know, like career character actor. This is definitely beyond what I was thinking. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, in answer to the question, yeah, I'd always thought <laughs> and hoped that I would make uh, a living in, in, the, in, in theater, film, television. Yes. But movie star is like a different thing. I mean, I had the thought. Years and years ago, when I first moved to Los Angeles, 
I went to this This American Life party because I'm public radio host, right? Sure. Yeah. But actually, I think my friend John Hodgman and my co- my colleague John Hodgman was was on the This American Life tour or something. Yeah. He invited me to a This American Life party, and I'm like, I'm gonna go meet Ira Glass. I had never met sure. Ira. Yeah. He's totally my hero, of course. Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, and I did meet him. He was super nice to me, much nicer than he needed to be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, my wife and I walked in, and somebody that I had never met said, "Oh, have you met Jack Black?" And the thought that occurred to me. You're lovely, Jack. Don't worry. Oh, good, good. Uh, the thought that occurred to me was like, how weird must it be to be introduced to somebody you don't know who knows you? Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That must be odd. Yeah. It's one of the weird things that goes <laughs> along with the gig is the uh, the fact that uh, uh, people have you at a disadvantage all, all the time. You know me and I don't know you. And uh but uh, it, it, there is a small part of, of me that that was the goal, too, is just to be known. Uh, and that it comes from an insecurity, like Kyle was saying before. It always comes with a little flaw in your character that you need that. It's, uh, I always thought it was, I just I need more love. Yeah. I, need, I just need it. love. It's just always a little inadequate that way. And it's just, I need everybody to love me. It's, it's kind of, yeah, it's a hole. It's not right. I've had I've had actors come on this show who have told me with all sincerity, and I believed them. Yeah, that when they try and get a part and don't get it, it's fine because their job is acting, and they went and they did their job and they understood that it was not a fit. Yeah, when they auditioned and that they didn't get a part or whatever, was fine. Yeah, I know that I couldn't ever Put a, see it. Oh, that the way. rejection! You couldn't. Not in a million years. Oh, yeah, I couldn't. Well, there's some weird perverse though, because I I hate rejection probably, and then you go in to be an actor. It's a weird like, it's almost perverted. Yeah, like why would you go into that line of work? And it's painful. It is painful. But I think you haven't had audition in a long time. It's been a while <laughs> since I've had a good yeah. I haven't had auditions for many years, but I I enjoyed the process. I I, I think it's one Jacobs. of the secrets of your success is that early on you re, you crack the code that an audition is really a performance. Yeah, and I'm going to give you everything I got and leave it all in here. And when you know Jack does that, it's it's probably pretty. And when you go crazy and climb the walls and improv, so I think that helps. You know. You go in, you audition, and if it goes well, that means that you just had fun. That you enjoyed the process of auditioning, and you leave, and you go, "Oh, that's a f- I got the rush. That was great." And then you let the chips fall where they may. It doesn't yeah. really matter. You feel yeah. good about the audition. That's 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 a uh, that is the main thing. Yeah, Cause it sucks though. If if an audition goes badly, <clears throat> then I feel. Just like anything, terrible. dude. That's the actor's curse is well, the second guessing. After you finish an audition or after you finish uh, doing a show, if I felt like I was off, it ruins not just my day. It ruins all the time until I have a redemption oh, yeah, gig. Yeah. Then I'm finally freed of the curse of being the last thing that I did was I think conversely, the secret of my unsuccess is my hatred, fear, and dread of auditions. They mm. ruin from the time I get it. To the time I have to do it, my life is pretty much ruined. Yeah. I'll just obsess on it, rehearse it, sort of a uh, flop sweat, try to relax, try to get into the thing. And then, yeah, if the audition goes well, if I did well, it's fine. If I didn't do well, then I'm miserable, too. So the whole thing has been... So now, my uh, whole, if you have to give me the, ro- the role. I, I won't audition. You know who it sucks for, especially, yeah. though, is the significant other who has mm. to deal with this uh, actor who's... Yeah. A basket case until their <laughs> audition or performance yeah. or whatever is over. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard we're, we're not easy to live with. No. Let's be honest. We'll finish my interview with Tenacious D after a quick break. Plus, the song that changed jazz singer Jose James' life. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen. 
We already know that you love genre movies, film craft, and female filmmakers. So if you love all those things, then by transitive property, you love my podcast, Switchblade Sisters. Hi, I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I have a conversation with a different female filmmaker about their favorite genre film. Each episode covers the filmmaking process, working in the film industry, and just like general geeking out about awesome movies. I've had such great guests like the big sick writer Emily Gordon. To me, indie movies as of late have come to be a catch-all term for a movie that kind of defies genre. Billy Madison and Half-Baked director Tamara Davis. When a comedian comes and enters onto my set, they're they're just there to be funny and we're all ready and waiting for them to be funny. Horror industry veteran and actor Barbara Crampton. That's where real drama lies for me. What's What's between you and I speaking right now? Where, where are we meeting? And what's the energy that we create between us? And so many others. So check out Switchblade Sisters every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Here with me now, Kyle Gass and Jack Black of Tenacious D. They made a new animated series entirely hand-drawn and voiced by the band. It's called Post-Apocalypto. The first episode is up now on YouTube. This new web show and album where, Jack, you have drawn all of the pictures in the animation. Yes. And it is a very tenacious D.E. plot line. Yeah. (laughs) Did you you watch it? Yeah, I totally did. Yeah, it was a hit. First time you mentioned it. Oh, good. Thank you. I hope you liked it. It feels like you guys saying, rather than trying to please everyone slash perhaps even be successful on others' terms, that like you have gotten to a point in your life where you're just going to do this thing that you love in exactly the way you want to. Well, I mean, when we first started off, we were like, let's just do a, a, a little animatic, a little sample, and then we'll shop it around to, to you know, your Netflix, your Amazon, your HBO. Yeah, it was a pitch, Someone really. will scoop it up and pay for this thing to be animated properly. And, and do all the hard work. <laughs> and uh, nobody did, even though we had made what we thought was a little nugget masterpiece. I was like, are you kidding me? Nobody wants the Tenacious D series, animated series. Okay. <laughs> You know what, though? We love this so far. We're just going to go ahead and <laughs> make it, it just like this. It's animatic, sort of half-baked. And we were thinking we're just going to do like six mini 10-minute webisodes for we YouTube. Were, I think we started at 10. But then, yeah, but we ended up at six. <laughs> but once we finished, we're like, this is like a movie. This plays as a movie. And we, when we played it for friends and family at Kyle's birthday. And uh, <laughs> let me tell you. I know they're friends and family, but whoo-wee, did we get a nice uh, response, response. and um, it felt like uh, some of our best It did feel very pure, though. Yeah, there was no notes from the network. No, it was just uh, the three of us in a little room like this. When you say the three of us, you mean me, you, and... John Spiker. John Spiker, our producer extraordinaire. Yeah. I thought you guys were going to say, you, me, and don't forget about Tenacious State. Oh, my God. You're so right. <laughs> don't forget. But, you, you know, can... we were going to do a different album. We had a plan to do a different concept album, but we looked at each other when it was time to get down to business, and we're like, this is not the album for our time. <laughs> we actually have to do the post-apocalyptic yeah. concept rock opera because of these these times demand it. And, and that's what we did. Oh, I think that means we're rapping. Oh my god, the, are they playing us off? Yeah. That's so weird. Kyle Gass, Jack Black, Tenacious D, thank you so much for being on Bullseye. What, what a joy to have you on the show. Thanks Great so to be much. here. Thanks yeah. for having Great us. Great to have us. Tenacious D, folks. Post-Apocalypto, the animated series, is available to stream now on YouTube. The soundtrack drops early next month. They're also kicking off a huge tour all over North America. We'll have links to dates on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. Time now for our segment, The Song That Changed My Life. This time, Jose James. Jose is a singer from Minneapolis, and while he works a lot in jazz, collaborating with folks like Chico Hamilton, Chris Bowers, just to name a couple, he's also kind of a genre polymath. His efforts go beyond jazz, into hip-hop, electronic music, and now soul. 
latest album, James is taking on one of the greats, Bill Withers. James' new album, Lean On Me, features 12 renditions of his favorite Bill Withers tracks. The one you're listening to right now is Use Me. He recorded it right here in Los Angeles, where we make this show, in Capitol Records' famous Studio B. But not before getting Bill Withers' blessing, of course. He got that from the legend over dinner. So... When we asked him to talk about the song that changed his life, you'd think he might go with a Bill Withers song, right? But instead he picked Love and Happiness, a classic from another all-time great soul singer, Al Green. Okay, let's go to Jose. My introduction to Al Green, um, anybody my age will probably laugh at this, was actually watching Pulp Fiction. Amazing soundtrack, and everybody knows the scene, you know, where, uh, you know, the gangster, Marcellus Wallace, is being introduced, and, you know, they're playing this this cool 70s soul music. Thing is, Butch, right now, you got ability. But painful as it may be, ability don't last. In your days are just about over. Now that's a hard fact of life. But that's a fact of life your ass is going to have to get realistic about. And, you know, Quentin is such a genius for using music in these in crazy ways, you know. And it introduced me to this whole tradition of how soul music is used uh, in these gangster movies, in these black gangster movies. And it was so cool, you know, and it immediately made me want to learn who was that singer. What was this sound? What was this behind the scene? See, this business is filled to the brim with unrealistic <laughs> who thought their ass would age like wine. <laughs> if you mean it turns to vinegar, it does. If you mean it gets better with age, it don't. I had to go buy the soundtrack to Pulp Fiction, and I went to the Electric Fetus, which was Prince's favorite record store in Minneapolis. That's where I pretty much, you know, built my entire collection from jazz to hip-hop. It was and remains to this day just an amazing record stop in, in Minneapolis. So I took the CD home, opened it up, and I saw it was Let's Stay Together by Al Green. I said, okay. Who's Al Green? You know, and then I found out. And then this one track, Love and Happiness, just completely, you know, grabbed me and and took me in a whole nother direction. Love and happiness. Well, coming from a jazz background, um, I'm always looking for something a little bit more sophisticated. And Love and Happiness starts out of time. A rubato, and it's just he's just singing love and happiness. And then that foot stomp comes in, you know, on a box. And it was like, oh, okay. I was such a student of jazz standards which, you know, are very clever and, you know, uh, verbose. And, you know, this was a quite different, you know. He's stating a theme, love and happiness, okay. What's, what does that mean? And then he's like, wait a minute, something's going wrong. You're like, oh. Wait a minute, something's going wrong. Someone's on the phone. What's the drama, you know? Someone's on the phone, 3 o'clock in the morning. And, like, that kind of rhyme coming from hip-hop, I loved that immediately, you know. Something's going wrong. Three o'clock in the morning. Someone's on the phone, you know, talking about she can make it right. Like, that's such an intriguing line that I was already hooked. Because I'm a, I'm a lyricist and a wordsmith, too. Yeah. Oh, baby. 
that point, I was really a jazz dude, jazz and hip-hop. I didn't really know that much about soul and R&B. I just didn't understand it. Al Green actually started as a jazz singer, and I found out, you know, Leon Ware, Marvin Gaye, Bill Withers, Lou Rawls, all these guys started as jazz singers. They had a certain kind of jazz information. When you hear Al in the very beginning go up and hold that note, just hold it forever. That could be like Sarah Vaughn, you know what I mean? That kind of like intimacy was really cool. Be good to me, I'll be good to you, we'll be together. So he cut this record for High Records in Memphis, and they were known for a very distinctive sound. One of the distinctive things about these sessions at High Records were the Hodges brothers, Teeny Hodges on guitar, Charles on organ, Leroy on bass, and then we had the legendary Al Jackson on most of the drum sessions. And that rhythm section was so legendary, they were responsible for you know cranking out so many hits of that era. What strikes me about how they recorded this track, too, is Al Green's vocal. It's very raw. You know, I, you know, I was used to listening to uh, Michael Jackson, which is very pop. You know, there's like there's like three lead vocals and it's very smooth and there's like reverb and all these things. This is just one mic. You can tell, you know, he's in the room with them. You know what I mean? I love it because it really conveys all of the emotion in his delivery. It captures every nuance. This is almost like documentary recording. Like it's obviously was a huge hit, but it's like this is a moment of him just jamming with these guys and performing. You know, he's really performing in the studio. You can feel that energy. This track opened my eyes to a third path in music, you know. I knew about jazz which to me was about learning the standards, improvising off of the changes. And I knew about kind of more pop, you know, pop and hip-hop. I wasn't a rapper, you know, I didn't have the skills to be an MC. And this is like a third path. It's like you could be a singer-songwriter like Al Green, but it's still full of jazz information and still funky and direct and reaches people. And I don't know, just a light bulb went off and it all made sense. Jose James with the song that changed his life. His new album is Lean On Me. It's a great collection of Bill Withers covers and it's out now. I really think James is one of the great singers going right now. Let's take a listen to one more song off of his new record. This one is Lovely Day. When I wake up in the morning, love, and the sunlight hurts my eyes, something without warning, love, bears heavy on my mind. Then I look at you, and the world's alright with me. Just one look. Now, usually we close Bullseye with an essay recommending something from popular culture that I write. But I saw some great stand-up comedy the other day, and the comic, Ted Alexandro, said that I could share it with you here. So I'm going to do that. It was recorded a few weeks ago at the Comedy Cellar in front of the same brick wall that Louis C.K. stood in front of when he returned to the stand-up stage. Um, Now, I I want you to know that Ted talks about the sexual assaults in this set 
that were committed by C.K. and by fellow comic Bill Cosby. There are some descriptions of the acts. They aren't as graphic as they could be, though we have bleeped a few swear words. But if those subjects are sensitive to you or inappropriate for anyone that you are listening with, or if you just don't want to hear jokes about that stuff, come back in five minutes. I understand. Now, as a fellow straight guy in the comedy business, I'm grateful to Ted for taking on this stuff dead on without lecturing or self-righteousness. I don't think that straight dudes are the heroes of this story. I want to be clear. But I am grateful when somebody like me stands up. I think that this is a really great set that challenges all of us, but especially those of us who worked with these people and to some degree or other supported them to be better people. Let's go to the stage and Ted Alexandra. Thanks, guys, for almost clapping until I made it to the stage. <laughs> what, does a guy have to be convicted of sexual assault to get an extended ovation? <laughs> what do I have to do up here? Do I have to take my out? <laughs> what do I have to do for you to cheer my arrival at the stage? <laughs> Ask yourselves that. Oh, you know where you are. Don't you? You know where you are. <laughs> Tough time for stand-up comedy. <laughs> Particularly certain comedians. What's going on, though? The icons, right? They're dropping like flies. Bill Cosby's a rapist. If you had told me in the 1990s that between Bill Cosby and Donald Trump, one would go on to become president and one would be going to jail for rape, I would have got that one wrong. But what's with this PC culture? It's suffocating, right? Oh. Do you want to live in a world where a man can't politely ask a colleague if he can take off all his clothes and masturbate to completion? Are we in that? Is that where we are as a culture? In the most gentlemanly of terms, may I please take my out and a in the workplace? Is that where we are? Look, there are mechanisms in place for justice, right? Eventually, justice is served. You know, women complain that they're second-class citizens. But look, Bill Cosby raped dozens of women. Decades went by. The allegations were widely known and reported. Comedian Hannibal Barris told some jokes about it. It went viral. And eventually justice was served. The system works. <laughs> the U.S. military has an epidemic of sexual assault and rape. People report it gets ignored. Why should the stand-up community be held to a higher standard than the United States military? <laughs> up, right? Very up. Why can't we just return to the golden age of comedy? Why can't we put it behind us? Just return to the golden age. Let Bill, let Bill go back to being Dr. Huxtable, a, a gynecologist with access to vaginas and drugs. <laughs> they say criminals leave clues. <laughs> I just thought it was a fun family show. I had no idea. 
It was a murder trail. Right? Why can't we just let Louie go back to writing jokes about how men are the gravest threat to safety of women? But he, does, he doesn't just write jokes. He walks the walk. And I think that is to be commended. He's a performance artist. Very disturbing, Mr. C.K. But appropriate, right, in the age of Trump? It's no different. Is it any different than Donald Trump said, when you're famous, you can grab him by the and nothing will happen. Louis' version of that joke was, when you're famous, you can ask him if you can in front of him. And clearly, nothing will happen. Oh, God, and then, but there's people, right? Oh, but he's lost, he's lost, he's lost everything. It's not fair that men should lose everything in a flash. And by everything, I mean hardly anything. And, and in a flash, I mean a decade later. Let's, let's do that shift. <laughs> Said what I need to say for tonight. Maybe some jokes would be nice. Not that these aren't, but you know, this is what I walk around thinking all day. And now you're gonna see my comedy act. Ted Alexandra recorded live. If you want to hear more from him, he's a great comic. He's always performing. You can check out his website, tedalexandro.com. He also has a new comedy special. I don't know whether this material will be in it, but he's got a new comedy special on the way in October called Senior Class of Earth. We'll have a link to all that stuff on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where my producer Kevin tells me that the Egyptian geese have goslings. Yes, that's right. The Egyptian geese have goslings. So there's your gosling update. As for the dark blob in the lake, we haven't seen it this week. So presumably it's gone to hibernate deep in the center of the earth. Show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was recorded by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. Our theme song was provided to us by the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries. Our thanks to them. Our special thanks this week to Heidi Vanderlee and Ted Alexandro for responding so quickly when we asked if we could use that comedy on our show and for giving us permission to use it, of course. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, there are hundreds on our website. Just go to MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.